Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Koye, and on the show today, I'll be chatting with Yuadan Tillahun, the founder and CEO of Flawless Events. Flawless is a leading corporate event company based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Yuadan and her friends started Flawless Events as a side hustle in Washington, D.C. In 2007, after 15 years of living in the U.S., she went to Ethiopia on holiday and never came back. Let's get into it. Hey, Yoden, welcome to African Business Stories. Okay, go on. Thank you for having me. So I, I know you're from Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And um, Ethiopia is one of those very unique countries that um, on the continent that was never colonized. You know, and um, I wonder what it was like growing up in Ethiopia. And, and if you were, if you guys were conscious of this uniqueness, you know, while you were, you were growing up. Sure. Um, so I was born at a time where, the, where Ethiopia was run by a military government. Okay. And so information was very limited. It was a very socialist country. And, you know, this is early 80s where connectivity to the rest of the world was limited anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes, there was a, the, the fact that we've never been colonized is something that you grow up with. You take it for granted. Um, it went a little bit too far at certain times because we almost felt like we were not part of Africa because of the, you know, the whole perception that we look different, we've never been colonized and so forth. So we definitely grew up with a chip on our shoulder that we were better than thou. Um, so we knew that Ethiopia was special to a point where we turned, we appeared a bit too cocky to the rest of the world. And we realized, at least from my sense of uh, coming into myself, once I came to America, I realized that I was African and that I was just another black woman. But yeah, <laughs> growing up in Ethiopia, we definitely had a different perspective. So in terms of language, because of course, with other countries in Africa that were colonized, you know, they took on, you know, English, Portuguese or French, you know, um, and I know that there are multiple tribes in Ethiopia. Um, how do you guys navigate language? You know, is there, what's, the, what's the national language in Ethiopia? So the national language is called Amharic. We definitely have various ethnicities within the country and you have major languages alongside the Amharic. But, you know, for whatever reason, Amharic was chosen as the national language. That's the working language for the country. And the second language is English. At some point during the emperor's time, I think in the 60s, 70s, French was. Uh, the, but it's just an adapted version. I think it was based more on the relationship the country has with other countries. But ever since I was born, at least the official language has been in, uh, The second language is English. So. Right. We automatically converse in Amharic with people in the country. We have our own way of telling time. Hmm. We have our own script, uh, alphabets. Uh, we have our own dates. For instance, Ethiopia's New Year is on September 11, and it's right. 2013. <laughs> so we're also about seven months, seven years, and so forth behind. So we're off. You know, we have our own Christmas. We have our own Easter, and so forth. So. Whenever you're working and living in Ethiopia, you have to define, is this European time or as we call it, Ferengi time uh, or Ethiopian time? Uh, Even on dates, you have to say, is this Ethiopian date or, you know, so you kind of have to figure out which calendar, which timeline you're talking about. 
That is so interesting. Thank you for that little history, you know, and cultural lesson. Thank you so much. Um, so coming back to your story. Um, so, so I know that you finished high school. You, you lived in Ethiopia and finished high school and, and moved to the U.S. So how was that? What, what did you study and where did you go to college? I applied to different colleges in the U.S. And I get an acceptance letter out of Nebraska, out of a small college called Bellevue, with a handwritten, personalized, welcoming letter with, you know, a note saying that the admission guy had even eaten Ethiopian food before. And so my parents looked at that and said, oh, you're definitely going there because you're going to be, you know, well protected and safe. So the first year was definitely very hard uh, from the fact that, um, you know, we, you know how it is growing up in Africa. You're super protected. You're not really exposed to a lot of things. You're under the guidance and, and decisions of your parents. Right. We sent in a brand new country. I spoke English just fine. Um, I thought I knew the Western culture because you watch as many movies as you can, even if it's on video cassettes, you know, whatever you can. But um, the homesickness was real. The, um, you know, there was no Skype. There's no video calls with your parents. Call, international calls were extremely expensive at the time. Uh, you did collect calls maybe once or twice, once a month or every other month. So um, it, was, it was emotionally it was very difficult. But I also I think it's, it's through difficulties, you know, you, you go through your moment of growth. Um, so I definitely started being aware of who I am in the world through that process. But the first few years was very difficult. Wow. So what did you study in college? Um, so to give a bit perspective as we go through the story, i never been a studious student. Um, I hated school. I didn't understand school. I was just in school because I had to be there. And it was just more focused on how can I get from this grade to the next grade to the next grade. If you ask me what are some of the concepts you've learned in physics and biology, I'll be like, I have no idea. I did not get it. So school did not come easy. I was a hard worker. I was a disciplined worker because I was afraid of bad grades at my parents. But I, I was an average to below average student. Uh, so um, thank God applications to U.S. universities was not as stringent and as difficult as it is nowadays, as we see it with our son. Um, so I did not know. I had no ambitions to be one thing or another. My mother was a now as they call it, executive assistant in an office uh, at that time, very comfortably called secretary. My father was, you know, worked for different government offices. And towards the end of my high school years, he started running his own business because the government allowed it. Um, so uh, as we were growing up, the biggest thing that women did were, were they were either secretaries or the other sexier job was being a flight attendant. And Ethiopian Airlines being Ethiopian Airlines, that was one of my ambitions. I wanted to be a flight attendant. Wow. My father said, oh, no, you are not going to be a flight attendant. And then my second option was what I saw my mom do. So I was like, well, then I want to be a secretary. And he still said, you're not going to be a secretary. So it was a push from my parents. And then so they decided, my mom very specifically decided that I was going to study international business management. And as she said it, in a, in a lot of pride, she said, my daughter is going to study international business management. I got on the bandwagon. I'm like, that sounds quite sexy. Yes, I can study because I honestly did not have any inclinations. And again, I grew up with an older brother who knew specifically what he wanted. You know, he was smart in school. He knew he wanted to be an engineer. He did all kinds of, you know, silly stuff and that. So whenever you spoke to him, he was very clear on what his path would be. And I'm, right. you know, the only girl in the house with, eh, I don't know. You know, I have a pretty handwriting. We'll figure out what to do with that. So um, 
anyway, studied international business. Um, school in the U.S. was much easier for me. Again, I think that discipline of study, uh, the fear of my parents, you know, the fact that I'm away from home gave me more that like just tunnel vision of just do school. There's nothing else to focus on. Mm. And, you know, the U.S. education is like kind of built to make sure that you succeed and they nurture whatever you have, even back then. So that helped. Um, suddenly became an A student. And uh, yeah, so finished undergrad. And I still didn't have any clear vision of what I wanted to do. Uh, I could not see my life beyond. I've always been, okay, well, this year is this, you know, next month is what I'm doing. Like this five-year, 10-year questions always overwhelmed me. Um, I just like to live more in the closer future than the further future. Right. And so after graduating, um, after my first degree, I wanted to go back to Ethiopia because I've actually never wanted to leave to begin with. My sense of who I am and that feeling of home um, was always attached to Ethiopia. So I told my parents, I said, can I come back? You know, I don't want to be here anymore. And they both said, no, you, you, as a woman, especially, you can't go far with the first degree. So you have to do it in your second degree. So I said, fine. So I went straight from undergrad to grad school, which is one thing I now never, I recommend for, you know, young kids never to do because I had no perspective of life, what it was about for me to apply it. So Grad school felt like an extension of undergrad. For me, it was just study, write the papers, pass the exam, and be done with it. After undergrad, after grad school, again, I said, okay, now can I come back home? And then um, my parents said, no, well, you know, you don't have any work experience. What would you do in Ethiopia? So I need to do some, get, get some work experience and then come back. So by this time, I've started off in Nebraska. I did a year. It was too small of a town, just did not like the energy. So I've transferred over to Missouri my undergrad and then from there went to Tennessee for my graduate school and you know throughout this time my best friend was in the east coast I would you know every summer would go to visit her in Pennsylvania then would go to Washington DC to party and then come back so this sense of you know there was a huge Ethiopian community in the Washington DC area there is yeah there still is (laughs) I could find a little bit of home every time I went to Washington, D.C. And even when my parents came to visit, because we had extended family in the D.C. area, I would, you know, would spend the summer with them in the D.C. area and then go back to my school and so forth. So a bit of home was always in the Washington, D.C. area. Right. So after graduating my MBA, we agreed with my best friend that we should live with together. So we said, OK, whoever finds a job. You know, as it's so nice to be young and uninhibited, right? It's like whoever finds a job anywhere in the U.S., the other person will follow. Right. So, so she found a job in D.C. and I followed um, and ended up there. Wow. So worked for about um, seven years. Wow. Where, where uh, were you working? So my first job with a very small firm run by an Ethiopian gentleman who was a huge businessman when uh, he lived in Ethiopia. So he did uh, commodities trading, so like fertilizers and so forth. So I became, you know, a small commodity trader, but more literally moving fertilizers from one country to Ethiopia, working through the documentation and so forth. So that lasted for about three years or so. Yeah, I worked there for about three years. It was a small firm, so it was a small return, right? So I, with friends, we started talking like we're always broke. <laughs> there, um, you know, life in America is like you're one. You're a mass. You've amassed tons of yeah. unnecessary bills when you're going to college because you never understood what the concept of credit card how it worked that you eventually have to pay it back. 
So we're trying to clean up our credits. We're you know, constantly paying bills and then you're constantly partying. We're in our early 20s. Um, and we're just sitting one day and we're like, you know, it's so exhausting to be broke. Like the few days before your next salary, you're, you know, counting pennies right. and still living like the college life. So we said, um, what could we do as extra income? Because, you know, managing our finances was never part of the discussion. It was more, how can we get more money? <laughs> and um, just brainstorming. And we said, you know, we love going to parties as much as we love throwing parties. And we were pretty good at throwing parties. Um, and then we talked about, you know, when we go to different fundraising or different African-related activities in the Washington, D.C. area, they were always disorganized. They started late. Things were chaotic. You didn't know who was doing what. They run extremely late. You looked at weddings. I was supposed to start at six. We'll start at nine. We'd end at one. Like, it was just, you know, like, you know, maybe we could do something around organizing other people's activities, you know, so anything from their birthdays to their weddings to their fundraisings and so forth. So brainstorming names of what we wanted to achieve was like make it better and make it more smooth, make it more seamless, da, da, da. And that's how the name Flawless came up. So it was like, we're like, we want an event to feel flawless. So we came up with Flawless Events. It was four of us at the time. America being America, you know, got the company registered overnight and started word of mouth. We started telling friends, you know, we've now started doing events. And so, you know, slowly somebody be like, oh, then you want to throw my birthday party? And then it's like, oh, we're doing a fashion show. You want to help? And it wasn't so much for the money. It was more how do we get our name out there and how do we even for us learn? Because none of us have ever done events on a professional level. You're working nine to five. So, so how did you how did you juggle that? The beauty of being in, in like areas of where you have like minded people, it's like somebody did our logo design. Okay. Uh, you know, everything was pro bono, right? It's like, oh, I'll do it. I'll design it for you guys. That sounds like a fun idea. So that got designed. Then it gets printed pretty quickly. Then we made T-shirts that said flawless. Like for us, it was just this, you know, how do we hype it up? And then a lot of the events happen in the evening. So we had, you know, young African entrepreneurs. Some There was a group that did networking events, but after hours, because for them as well, they had their regular jobs and then they, they, you know, any extra things happen or they happen over the weekend, right? So as a couple of our friends dropped out pretty quickly, but the, for the two of us, um, it was, for me, I think it was a fashion show that we did. And I remember getting home around four or three in the morning and feeling high, like literally saying that was so much fun. So everything from, you know, hustling people, shouting in the back room, you know, all of that. So, and by then I had given birth. So I, um, I was married and had a child. And I remember my husband had to go somewhere else the next morning and he left the, you know, our son with me. And even though I was exhausted and physically could barely move, I was like, this is so much fun. You know, that just, I could not explain it. I'm like, there's just, you know, that energy uh, and the excitement. So I was like, okay, this is, I love to do this. And by then I had also moved to the World Bank and I was working there. And what I would do, I remember I had, we had a wedding. Oh. I'm, like, I'm taking my lunch break and I would dash to the um, florist, agree on a floral arrangement, <laughs> take pictures and then dash back, you know, starve for the rest of the day because I actually didn't have time to have lunch. And then, you know, um, arrange it that way and then have weekend meetings with the bride and groom, you know, send emails and so forth. And But you know, discovering, discovering different um, cake makers, card makers, and so forth. It was just, it was, I loved it. And my husband could see, and he's always said, you know, why don't you do this on a full-time basis? But for me, it's always been like, I can't afford, you know, it's, I'm, 
yes, I've had my MBA, but it was all theory. Like I I did, didn't do MBA thinking I'm going to open my own business. I did MBA because I had to do something. Right. Um, so I always thought, you know, it's just going to be my side gig. Um, yeah, but that's how that's how it got started. Wow, that's so interesting. So here you are excited about Flawless, working at the World Bank, raising young babies, or at least as one baby at that time. And then you decide to move to Ethiopia. So can you just walk us through this? I'm sure there's a whole bunch in between. So so the in-betweens here. So one, my husband is Ethiopian as well. Okay. And when we met and we talked about, and again, that feeling of I want to go back home never left. So it's, um, you know, and, and as we talk, and as we talked, he would, uh, I would ask him and he'd also be like, yeah, I definitely want to live in Ethiopia at some point as well. So there was no specific date. There was no, this needs to happen for it to happen for, but it was just like, yeah, of course, we're going to leave the U.S. and, you know, live in Ethiopia. Um, so we get, we get married, we have a son, and that conversation is still there. Like, you know, right. at which point do we make a decision to move to Ethiopia? Because by then we bought a property in Washington, D.C., not necessarily in the best school neighborhood. And as our son was getting older, age school, three, four, we had to make a hard decision of either we move to the suburbs because we can't send him to a good school where we were, Um or we act on the dream of moving to Ethiopia. And by then, for me, it had been 15 years since I've been home. So wow. I lived with this, you know, of I want to go back. And I've never, I loved the U.S. Look, this is where I became an adult. This is where I became a woman. This is where my voice, I discovered my own voice, where I built my confidence, where, you know, a lot of it from I came in this country when I was 17. So I, I became an adult here, right? So I loved it, but I never felt at home. There was always this feeling of when things would happen, I would automatically disconnect. I never had an emotional attachment, uh, but it was a convenient place to live. Mm. And so my husband was like, look, you have to go back home. See it even if you like it, because you have this you know, romanticized attachment to Ethiopia. You have to figure out if it's a place that you can actually mm. live. Even though he was, when we right. lived in the US, he had made it, he, he had actually said, but by the time I had my our second son, he said, "When you get off maternity, he's like you need to do flawless full time." He's like, "This pull and push relationship you have with it does not make sense. Just quit, do it full time, and if it doesn't work, you can always get hired again. But at least give it your best." So I had started taking, um, you know, uh, there'll be like trade fairs or um, educational sessions here and there. So I started taking it a little bit more seriously buying more books, reading, you know, trying to understand the industry more. Right. So in the midst of that, in 2007, after 15 years, I'm like, okay, I'll take the two kids, take a couple of month break, come back to Washington, D.C., and then, you know, we'll start Flawless on a full-time basis. And then we'll, we'll like, you know, we'll enroll our son in some sort of a Catholic school or private school so that, you know, but, and then that couple of months is supposed to give me an insight of whether I can live in Ethiopia again and what would I do? Who could hire me? So I brushed up my CV before leaving the U.S., you know, take the two kids. And within two weeks of being an artist, I felt home. Wow. Like that feeling of I, I've been searching for in the U.S., like just driving down the street. I was like, oh, this has been what's been missing. Mm. So it was purely emotional, like that sense of I belong, like that, you know, and getting heckled on the streets, driving, you know, ridiculously, you know, like no sense of law, you know, you can do it. it was just like, 
I thrived in it. I was like, I love this. And I was like, honestly, it's, you know, here you're, you live here. So you know how it is, you know, there's law and order. You can't park here. You can't do that. You know, all these things there. It's like, you can park and, you know, stop in the middle of the road, ask a stranger passing by, say, can you pass me a bottle of water from that vendor? And then he'll bring you water. And then you get, so that I was like, Oh my God, like, this is, <laughs> these are my people. I love it. So that was great. You know, feeling that, okay, I still love this place. My parents um, and my husband's parents uh, still lived there. So we had a larger uh, family. Uh, the kids automatically were led to be kids because in the U.S. it's like, pick up your toys, you know, do this, clean up, and da-da-da. And then in Ethiopia, the parent, the grandparents are like, let them be their children. Like, let them run, let them go wild. You know, that sense of, you know, nobody's going to kidnap your kid or, you know, they're just... They're gonna. You can go to a restaurant and they can run around crazy and nobody cares. Right. So all of it. So that was the emotional. Ah, this feels so good part, right? And so I started talking to people because I had a couple of months before I went back to the U.S. So and I was like, okay, you know, here's my CV. Where could I be hired? Like, you know, can the world but with the World Bank here, the African Union, the ECA? I speak French. I have my MBA. I've worked in the U.S. I'm quite disciplined and da da da. And a few friends that knew that I did events on a, as a side hustle in the U.S. were like, why are you not thinking about starting your own business? I'm like, yeah, 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 no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Hook me up with your contacts, you know, let, arrange interviews for me. And especially one friend said, I am not going to let you be hired. He's like, rent an office, start doing events. I was like, I am here to party and relax. I am not starting a business. And before I know it, I had, a, had an office, a company was registered the event went off beautifully, like literally flawlessly. And that time <laughs> as we were preparing for the event, and as I say, we, it's really me. Um, people would be like, oh, you're still around. So what are you doing now? I'm like, oh, I, I started a business called Flawless Events. I'm doing events. So I talked to anybody who asked. And then, you know, in my parents' generation, they would be like, don't say, don't tell anybody what you're doing. They want to hijack it from you. So just be quiet about it. But I was just like, you know, a happy hour. What are you doing? Oh, I started flawless events and I'm doing da 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 da. You know, so the word of mouth definitely helped. And that sense of because a lot of people were just moving back, there was a group of people who were like, great, more people are coming, like more like minded people are going to be around. So people were like, what can I do to help you stay? Like, and then they would, in conversations, they would pu- push me to people, be like, oh, talk to your Adan, talk to your Adan. And then even in, event, in instances where they don't need an event company, they'll be like, oh, I need an event company. I'll be like, you need to do this. So there was also that energy and group of friends who are like, you have to stay because for their own selfish reasons. Right. That That is so interesting. So here you are. You're actually on holiday. I am on holiday. You're on holiday and you register a company yeah. and you start a business while on holiday. Yes. And so, but, oh so then I'm, I'm like, okay. And then my our son was being, was going to a kindergarten in the DC, in DC. So I was like, well, he can't be like watching TV and playing around all day long. So I went to my alma mater. I go to the French school, and I'm like, look, you know, we're debating on whether we want to move to Ethiopia. He's completely anglophone. Uh, he doesn't speak a word of French. Would you consider taking him? And he was four at the time, so they were like, well, why don't you bring him for a couple of weeks, and we'll see. This is literally in February. Okay, so. We arrived in Ethiopia in November. We were supposed to go back in January. We had extended so February. And I'm like, really? Just bring him? They're like, yeah, just bring him. Let's talk to him. So I take him. They said a couple of weeks. Again, I'm still very American at this point. So I take him for two weeks. They and they put him in a class. And then after two weeks, I take him out. And then they call. They're like, where's your son? I said, you said two weeks. They're like, 
well, let them finish the year. What's the point? I was like, finish the year. I'm like, that's till June. So I was like, sure. So I let them finish the year. So again, that whole point of, I don't plan ahead. I just, when things happen, I just roll with the punches. I was like, yeah, makes sense, I guess, since I'm going to be, because the event I was doing was in April or May. So we're going to stay until then anyway. And then my parents had forced us to invest on a property. Um, they were like, eventually you guys are going to move. So you should really buy, you know, build, uh, invest on a development. My, both my husband and I were very resistant. Like, we don't know when we're moving. So no, this was a few years. And by the year I was there in 2007, eight, the property we had invested in was being handed over. Okay. Wow. So just to tell you how the stars were aligning and to a point where we just could not resist it anymore. So Kid got enrolled without any proper process, uh, business because of one event. There was no business plan. There was no forecast wow. that else would come, but just one, right? The house that uh, was under construction for about seven years or whatever was being handed over. And my husband was now coming back and forth to see us. And the conversation of, I think we should really move. Again, it's still I think, even though I've started this, He's a, right. you know, he's a co-signer in the business. Even though we've been through all those process, he's a planner. He has an Excel sheet for various things in our lives. He is a, like, unlike me doing planning in the professional world, he's, you know, the super planner in our family. And for him, it was like, you had that. No, just pause for a minute. It's like, we haven't talked about our finances in the U.S. We still have a property. We have commitments in America. We can just up and move. And I was just like, but things are working out. Like, you know. <laughs> I'm like, when, you know, it's like, we'll never save sufficient money to ever say it's enough. Like, how, what is enough? Is it 100000 Is it 200000 Is it $500,000? What are we trying to save? Like, what will we ever save? We have a property in an area that can easily be rented. You know, for me, it was all like, it's happening. Let's just move with it. And for him, it's like, we said at least in two years, why are we rushing things? You know, but anyway, it, it's just, I bulldozed my way through that. But he also was working at the World Bank in the U.S., um, and when he came to the country office to have a chat with them, they offered him a job. Wow. So for me, it was like, when will things ever line up to this level? Like, if we don't listen to the universe and it's telling us now is the time, we're pushing our luck. We're going to go back and then wait for the perfect timing. Like, they, you know, so kicking and screaming, literally from my husband's side, we moved in 2008. <laughs> Wow, that is amazing. So you, you move in 2000 and you officially move in 2008, unofficially in 2007 yeah. and start this business. Yeah. And so so how, how quickly you do this one event, how were you able to grow to then grow, grow the, the business? Again, in 2008 in Ethiopia, we still had faxes. We were on dial-up internet. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, and uh, things were very backwards or you know like still we're still catching up to the rest of africa forget the rest of the world you know right uh, i had no plans on how i was going to grow the business i just knew i did this one event it was a fantastic success i loved it, it was reaffirmed that i love events um okay. we're financially comfortable enough that i didn't have to struggle for the next contract so we moved and i just continued networking and talking to friends and just drumming up that I have this company called Flawless Events. We do events. And at the time, I was really lucky because there was only one major company who was also doing okay. events. And they were very well known. Actually, at the, when I was talking about my company, people said, you can't compete. They've been established mm-hmm. for over 10 years. He has an amazing network. He's a, they're a well-respected company. They're doing it right. 
So there's no addition, there's no need and there's no space for more businesses to come in because companies can do their own events. Their executive assistant can pull off an event. But having done different courses in the U.S. and having been to trade fairs, I knew the angle of selling up. But she's not hired to do an event. She's hired. She has her own day-to-day from 9 to 5. You're adding another set of burden on her. And so it will be pulled off. You can pull off any event in any shape and form. But you will not, you will be as stressed going through the process mm-hmm. versus if you hired somebody who's just their sole focus is to make sure your event succeeds. So she keeps her nine to five. She keeps on doing what she's supposed to do for you. But you have another set of team who's like focusing on making sure your message gets out there. But I had the lingo. I had the different ways of presenting why an event company could add value, you know, through some of the courses I had taken. And I was an avid reader. reader. I wanted to learn as much as I can about the event industry. And so I think in 2008, I may have done one event. So I did that one event. And then after officially moving, I think I did another one. And literally to a point where I didn't even have sufficient printers. So I had a girlfriend who worked in African Development Bank, bank and I'll be like, can I come and print like 200 pages of something in color in your office? You know, so it was, again, I definitely was lucky enough to have sufficient network and contacts who had different resources and were more than willing to open their doors for me. Um, and then my dad also having run businesses, you know, when I was um, when I was going to school, he knew the city, you know, he knew different people and through even the process of establishing the business was East because of him. Lawyers, what should the your article of association say? How do you get this paperwork done? Because with my American mentality, I would go to a government office, they'll tell me, wait, and I'll just wait the whole day, be like, Are you ready for me yet? And then my dad would call me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm still waiting. He would come and get done in five minutes. He's like, you just don't wait. You like push your way around. So he helped me understand how to navigate the, you know, the the bureaucracy of the city. The fact that he knew a lot of people also helped. So it's not like I started completely blind, completely at a disadvantage. Hmm. I had, my advantages were my network, word of mouth. It was me and my small computer, uh, my phone as my office phone. You know, I would go around the cities posting posters for the upcoming conference. The registration was coming into my phone. I worked 24-7. Um, I remember various events where I spent, the, as I'm cutting budgets, the, the, the sun will come up because there'll be 500 names, print 500 names, cut them up, put them in this. Lead. It was like, and then the sun comes up. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> like, then, you know, quickly rest. But through that, what I learned, you know, I found better ways of doing badges. Um, you know, so the pain, the fact that I had to go through each pain was like, okay, and then when I come to the US, I'll look for the resources that'll make it easier for me when I go back. And so people started noticing that, oh, well, this event was done slightly different. Um, and, you know, I put my heart into the service. Like I just, if I'm going to say flawless events, I had to live up to the name. There was no other, right? And so I, even if I lost money on the event for me, it was like, okay, we're going to have 10 people on registration. We're going to have 10 people on this, blah, blah, blah. And people are like, oh, right. so this is what service feels like when you feel like you're completely taken care of. You don't, as, as the owner of the event, you don't have to be stressed at all. So people started noticing the difference and that there is actually space for other companies to provide slightly different type of services. So, so how did you how did you then decide? Because in 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 the US, you were doing all kinds of events, mainly yeah. parties and stuff. Um, yeah. But now, Flawless seems to focus just on corporate events. So, was that a conscious decision you Absolutely. made? Yeah. So, when 
when we did weddings in the US, I realized that I, I am not um, an empathic, uh, diplomatic human being. Mm -hmm. I'm very straightforward. So I didn't, I, was, I did not do a very good job of coddling the bride-to-be or the family members. I was more like, well, you said red flowers, the red flowers are coming. So we're not going to go to a white flower right now. So, and then, but my partner at the time was the one who knew how to smooth out relationships and so forth. And then during the wedding, it was like, but the bride mother wants this, but the bride wants this. And I'm like, well, the bride hired me, so I'm going to do what the bride wants. And then you see the bride mother crying. I'm like, what is all this emotional thing? So I knew I could not do weddings. I knew that I was not built for that emotional babysitting. So I was like, okay, I work better in places where we agree on certain things and then those things get implemented. And so when I went to, I was still open to doing weddings, but a lot of people told me Ethiopia is the kind of, the market is still so young and small that if you start doing weddings, you'll be known as a wedding planner. Right. And you have a hard time going towards the corporate side. So they were like, figure out which one you want to do, establish yourself in a specific area and then expand. And mm -hmm. that's been like one of the great advices I was given. And I felt comfortable in the corporate world. So I was like, okay, I'll start with corporate. And then my idea was I'll eventually hire the right people to do the wedding side. But the corporate side went so well that we just stayed with That's that. That's very interesting. So in terms of these corporate events, you've done some really, really high profile events. Um, I, I, it's almost like corporate events in, in, in Ethiopia is synonymous with flawless right now. Like, you know, all the, the UN world bank heads of state meetings, you know, flawless is there at the center as a center of it. Um, how was it building your team? So I want to talk about building of your team and expanding outside of, of, of Ethiopia, because you, you do do events around the continent as well. So that, Again, and it's through lived experience that I always tell young generation, do not do your master's right after undergraduate, because I felt like my MBA was wasted. I did not. I felt like I knew how to run events. I could. I loved the operations of events, but I did not know how to run a business, right. despite my degree, right? So even for the longest time, until very recently, I hired people... Okay, so it's layers. For me, Flawless has always been my passion that turned into a business that started right. making me money. And I was uh, obsessed with opera, so I knew that was a rare connection. And so I cherished that and I loved it. But I told that story so much in my head. Flawless for me was always my passion project, not a serious business. It was just my little passion project that ended up making me money, right? And so when I hired people, I always hired them from that, from the point of, well, it should be somebody who's just starting her career. And again, I keep saying she, because a lot of people who came to even apply to Flawless ended right. up being girls, uh, women. And so it was like, um, she's just starting off. She just needs a bit of experience. Flawless is a good, is a good stepping stone, but not a proper business to hire highly qualified people. So when I used to get resumes where, you know, educated in this and years of experience, I'll be like, why would you want to work with Flawless? I'm like, no, you're too overqualified. And I'll push them to my friends. And I always hired recent graduates, uh, people who've done maybe, you know, one or two events. So, and the burden of training them and getting them up to speed was on me because I always, let's say, underhired, okay? I was not a subscriber of Flawless was worthy of highly qualified people because again, 
this is just right. my passion project. This is a small thing, right? And I don't plan. I'd, I'd never had a business plan. So my growth plan was how many people can I hire, can I, how many soldiers can I hire to do sufficient number of events? It wasn't what am I lacking in my, you know, there was no strategy there. And so it was a painful process because I would hire, they would get to a certain point and events are exhausting. And I, I, I will tell people it's not mm. a sexy job. It is exhausting. It is painful. You would be here until two, three o'clock in the morning. It's labor intensive. They still don't believe me. They still think you're just exaggerating until they get in the thick of it. And then maybe about a year, they burn out and leave. I start over again. So my strategy wasn't how can I run my business, but I was like, let me hire more people. So even if one leaves, then I have a backup, mm -hmm. right? And even people around me, a lot of people run businesses or start businesses because the opportunity there and so forth. So you, I didn't have sufficient people in my in my network to talk to me about strategy. Like this it was like, so I'd be like, how do you guys handle when people leave? They'll be like, oh, just have sufficient people so that if one leave, you're not dependent on that just one person, just keep hiring more people. And that was, you know, the overall belief of how do you make sure that you have sufficient mm -hmm. support? And again, I always thought on support level, not on strategy or management level. And so as the company was growing and I had, we had to run more than one event at a time, I started hiring more people. And again, but I had to be part of each one as much as possible because a lot of it was right. in my head, right? So how should an event be flawless became synonymous of what would you add, what would make you add unhappy? Um, and so, you know, company grew from just having one person to two to three, you know, propping proper, you know, accounting office manager, but also having two, three event managers. And again, I'll, I'll get stressed and be like, what if I don't have sufficient business? What am I going to do with right. all these people? So my thought would be like, we have way too many events. I need more people. We have no event coming up next month. What am I going to do with the staff? You know, so that I was like, you know, going from high to low. And, um, and I was getting tired. So this is 10 years in wow. already. So in 2018, I was like, this is crazy. We're doing record number of events we're definitely you know doing well the brand has been recognized we deliver come high or like we will die but we will deliver but internally i did not know how to keep staff um i did not know how to make their career make sense i couldn't offer them anything but an event manager position then they can become a senior event manager but that's it we do events we die in events um and so I went to an information session for a program called Stanford Seed. Okay. You've heard of it? Yes. Okay. So initially, I think a year before I had received their flyer and it said something, something, Kenya. I was like, Kenya. And I closed it, right? But a friend who had done the program in a conversation goes, you should really consider this program. And I was like, why? He was like, it just gives you better, you know, um, vantage point. And he's one of those guys, if he says something, you believe it because right. he's so I was like, okay, I'll look into it. But again, I did not think Flawless would qualify. We're a small company. I think we were five or seven at the time. Yes, financially, we could be okay. I did not have a business plan. I did not have a management team. So as I was sitting there listening to the breakdown of what, you know, what they look for in qualified candidates and what the data, I honestly just went up and said, look, I think I will submit my application, but I don't know if I'm going to qualify. And... Um, the facilitator at the time, Rosie. So she was like, what do you have to lose? Just, you know, apply. So I was like, sure. And I applied. And that has been like 
the best um, decision I've ever made. Um, and through it's a year long program, and it literally takes you out of your day to day and helps you and gives you like a bird's eye view of the business that you've built and uh, where the gaps are. And it was just, that was the MBA I needed. Right. I'm sitting in a classroom of about 60 other companies. And these companies range from small as mine. So at that time, I think there were like maybe 10 to uh, businesses who had about 400 people. But we had commonalities um, of things that we struggled with. So retention, recruitment, um, you know, cash flow, all of it. I felt validated. I was like, oh, okay, it could be a small business, but as a business owner, I'm going through the same struggles. And companies may have either inherited it from their family, started it through a passion, studied it so thought, but so we all had this especially common problem of just because we're owners does not mean that we know how to run it. So started to identify, especially for me, the difference between what it means to be a CEO um, and what it means to do what I was doing. So I was never a CEO. I gave my t- the title because, you know, who's going to deny you the title? Right. But I was, I just love, I knew how to run events. I did not know how to run a business. So that entire year was filled with, oh my God, oh, I'm not crazy. So this is, you know, it definitely happens. By the end of the program, so what they do is they take you through an entire process of how do you transform your small company or your medium company into a larger company? Hmm. And that is when I realized I've always hired wrong. I've always been afraid of seeing my company worthy of qualified or, you know, smart people. And by the time you're done with the business plan, finally, um, you know, I, I remember, and it still makes me emotional. I stood in my office, like I was, like it was an all nighter to submit our, you know, our business plan to be reviewed. And I was like, I have a business. Wow. It's, it's no longer a passion project like this. I've built and, you know, through it, you realize, uh, and through conversations, it's like, oh, yeah, we're financially very responsible. Oh, yeah, this. And all, and I was like, oh, my God, this is an actual business. And it took 10 years wow. of me doing this and, like, you know, running around like a headless chicken to realize my role needs to shift. I can't be the face of it. And, 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 and it's in various conversations you realize, and they will ask you, you know, what is the role that you want to play? And orders, what is it that you dream for your company? And I was like, I, I don't want my company to be associated with me. You know, you look at all these Western companies, right? How many of us know who owns Nike, who owns Starbucks, da, 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 unless you're like reader, it's just Starbucks is Starbucks. So it's like in Africa, we don't build sufficient brands by where the brands stand on their own and they're not associated with the owner. Correct. Owner dies, company dies, you know, owner goes to jail, company goes haywire because the, that. And I was like, that's not what I want to build. That's not the, I haven't spent all these years of my life just to, for it to die if I die or for it to not survive if I pull away. So I think I became a mini ambassador to the program. I'm like, every African business should do this program because honestly, we take it for granted, but we don't have, we're, we don't have the same resources that, you know, the Western com- uh, companies who work in the US or whatever have. And so that was such a huge growth moment for me individually and for that company as well. So that's when we put proper systems in place that are not super dependent on humans or even on me. You know, yes, I've always been able to take summer breaks from away from the company and the company will run, but I was always on my phone and the computer because I'm always like, you know, the puppet master here, you know, 
pulling this and pulling that. And even for my family, it was like, oh, mom is, mom is working, you know, and it was accepted. It's like my husband worked for an institution. So when he took a vacation, he was on vacation. Right. For us, even family vacation was mom is still working. So I'll be like, oh, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up with you. Da, da, da. But I realized because everything has always been in my head. I have not put proper systems in place. I have not hired the right people for fear that the company was not worthy. I have not allowed. So the company would have died at my level. Right. Um, because that's it. I don't, everybody would just wait for me to make a decision because I have not hired generals or leaders sufficiently. Right. So I know I'm only answering part of your question, but no, but that's very fascinating to hear. You know, you are there, and it's probably the story of a lot of businesses on the continent. You know, to think that you run a company for ten years without a business plan, I think a lot of women in Africa might be able to relate to that. Um, But if you do want to take your company to to another level, then there's there's need to to put those um, processes in place. I, I I love when you said you know the difference between running an event and running a business you know, and coming to the realization that they're really two very different things. Yes. And that was another good takeaway from me. Um, so, so in terms of going forward now, having done the, the, the Stanford Seed program, you know, and deciding to hire, are you now hiring different? What does your team look like today? Yeah. So last year I made, and I think I, I struggled with it. I was like, should I, should I not? So I had, um, I now have one person that I've hired as director of events, and she's pretty much become my second certified project manager, um, worked here for years and so forth. So she's now doing really well. Now I have somebody who's more of a finance manager uh, because I realized that the company cannot survive without a proper financial plan and uh, management and so forth. So yes, I now have um, the company. The fact that the company is healthy allows me to hire with good salary. The downside to that now with COVID is when you have absolutely no income, now you have highly paid people on your payroll. (laughs) You have to figure out how to keep the host of the industry will bounce back. But yes, I have been more conscious um, and more deliberate in the way that we hire. Um, And I just don't hire for, you know, to fill a gap, but rather more looking long-term. So yeah, that's been, that's made a difference. Okay, that's interesting. Talking about about women and women-owned businesses, what what what's the the entrepreneurial landscape um, for women like in in Ethiopia? It's challenging. I think a lot of it. Um, you have a lot of small to micro level um, businesses that are owned, whether it's jewelry, leather products, textiles, and so forth. And again, I am. I believe a lot of them maybe play in the small industry because of that lack of knowledge of how do you, how do you how do you organize your business how do you put the right people in place to allow you to grow along the you know to grow your company and because we don't trust and we don't trust because we don't know better you know the owner is the finance person is the source uh, is the supply chain manager all of it it's impossible to grow. What you don't know is, is what holds you back. So I think for, for a lot of um, businesses is that, you know, we're a one-man show, right? So um, how do you organize yourself sufficiently? And at which point do you do it to allow your business to grow? So I hear, and again, this is where I think is my weakest area of answering, but I've run Flawless not as a woman. I've just run it as should be run 
I never, gender never came in the way, right? And never got in the way. Even though we work with a lot of government offices, a lot of the areas that we work in are full of women, men. I'll walk into a meeting and it's halfway through that I realize, oh, I'm the only woman today. Um, and I'm sitting with ministers, state ministers and whatever they may be. But for me, I'm there as the expert in events. I am there as your expert of how to do trading. That's not why I'm here. But you can't tell me on how you should, your event should be run. So I would sit at a table head to head arguing like, no, you can't do that. No registration cannot happen. This place it has to be here. That's because I am 100% confident in my knowledge of how to run an event. And so that assertiveness for me is always like, I'm at this table because you trust my knowledge in events. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a female. The gender part, I kind of brushed off. And as I get asked a lot of those questions, I've realized that they're, they're built-in mechanisms that you put around you, right? So you're at an event, you're running it, da da da, and then somebody will come and be like, oh my God, that was so well run. Can we have dinner and talk about the events that I'm may have and maybe I want to hire you so can we have dinner and talk about it and I'll be like oh my god that's like a lovely idea I can't do dinner but can we do lunch right and as you do that that meeting never happens but it's, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction right so I realize that I do it all the time to a point where I don't even notice that I do it but I just know that I've learned how to filter off let's have uh cocktail mm, not happening let's do it so i may have lost business opportunities because i did not take those offers on but just because as a woman i you just don't know where that's going to lead and i'm like why would i put myself in a situation where i can't control if it was a man maybe that opportunity would have turned into an actual business so maybe for me it's like the most that i've my womanhood has helped me back is maybe from potential businesses i wasn't aware of because that knee-jerk reaction that made me say, no, I don't want to be with you late night to discuss a potential business, right? Ignorance is a bliss to a certain degree. It's like even when I lived in the U.S., it took me a while to recognize racism. I just always thought people were having bad days. It's like, you know, give me an attitude. Oh, okay, she's not having a good day and move on from it. And I think so even in Ethiopia, I think if somebody was making an advance or was giving me the runaround because I'm a female and they were looking for something else, I probably just thought, well, he's incompetent. I'm just going to look for somebody else who can get it done. So I think part of it could be that, um, not having read too much into it or, you know, being oblivious to it, I think um, has been good. But, you know, running a business, again, because Flawless never had to, do, you know, take a loan and didn't have, have to deal with the banking sector and so forth, my understanding from, you know, engaging with different business groups is, you know, it's very hard for a woman-owned business to take a loan without her husband co-signing on it uh, or showing collateral. And a lot of women, you know, we haven't built built wealth or we, you know, we buy a house when we're actually in a, you know, when we get married. Up until that point, you're living with your parents. So you're, you know, that sense of, you know, build your credit if there was such a system or, you know, do this is not there. So you live with your parents until you get married. You get married. He probably bought the house under his name. So now you're moving in. You're still running a business. But when you're asked to show collateral, it's not in your name, you know. So I think for a lot of women businesses, access to finance has always turned out to be a challenge. I think for me, now that I know a little better, access to resources and knowledge is also another huge challenge, but it hasn't been recognized yet. Um and that, you know, the audacity to dare huge. Uh, and I think the same way that I made the mistake of saying I'm small enough, this little niche is good enough. But to say, how can I make this, you know, an Africa-wide business? Right, right. So talking about now you have a business plan. And, and does that business plan include, you know, building an Africa-wide um, company? So, you know, around 2013 
or so, I we started getting offers from other countries. So again, this was all through word of mouth because we do so many international events. People were like, oh my God, this was run as good as by any European standard, you know, event uh, company could do. So our name started being pushed to different um, countries and also organizations that would have hosted an event in Ethiopia, if they're hosting it in another country the following year or the year after, it would be like, we worked so well together. Right. Why reinvent the wheel? Can you do it here? My inner self want to say, no. But then I force myself <laughs> to say, yeah, no problem. Ghana, yeah, I, I got you. Ghana is not an issue. And then on a site visit, I'll just build the relationships. But I think it's been easy building that relationship because the energy that I put forth is I know what I'm doing. I would say it's a small portion of our business, but it's been a fantastic opportunity right. to build our brand around the continent. Part of our growth strategy is, you know, when um, in Stanford Seed, we had to do this thing mm. where we had to dream the impossible dream for the company. And it was done by everybody. So it was like, you know, if you had no constraints, if you could just think about what Flawless could be, what do you want it to be? And part of it was, you know, to, for it to be this global brand. Um, and it was, you know, bought in by all the staff. It wasn't just me, but especially them, actually. It was like, you know, we can do it. And why are we not? This out? So it's building our capabilities and our the way that right. we do our events to do more of the regional ones. Uh, so to actively bid for regional events to, you know, as well known as we are within Ethiopia, it's like to prove ourselves around the continent as well. So that is part of the growth wow. strategy. Well, that, my, my last question is, is what is next for you, Dan? You know, so since Stanford Seed, for me, the next has been how do I grow in, this, um, in, in the CEO shoes, right? How do I stop? being the face of Flawless 100% and how do I stop being at every event? Well, I had already stopped, but how do I stop doing events and focus on nurturing, creating a nurturing environment within the company, focusing on implementing our strategy, building relationships. So literally being a CEO rather than a COO and a CEO and, mm. you know, all of that. Then COVID hit. Right. And um, our industry is one of the hardest at once. Like events came to a complete standstill. And as Flawless our entire eggs are in one basket. We don't do anything else but events. Uh, we do we dabble a little bit in PR and communications if it's related to the events that we're doing. But outside yeah. of that, we're an events junkie. Yeah. And this has been a moment of reflection for me and saying, um, well, a few things. I've, I've realized that my energy in the events has shifted a little bit in the sense that oh, I'm so high and excited part is gone. And um, I get excited when you get events, but I, I get excited for the staff to do the event rather than for me to do it. And when I engage with clients, I could I can sense that I'm getting impatient. Like, look, we got this, we do this, like our eyes closed, like, you know, rather than the super hand-holding, the ethos of, you know, completely making you feel like I'm losing the patient for it. So I could sense that, okay, I'm ready to let go. Um and let the rest of the team take over as much as possible. So with COVID, it's been one super hard. Um, lucky enough that we're financially healthy enough that you know we can still maintain our staff. And the government has also said we can't fire anybody. So whether we want to or not, we're bleeding. Uh, we're bleeding cash, and there's no end in sight. I don't think until 2021 anything is going to happen. And every month is long. And so the past, and even especially since um, I came to the U.S. for summer, it's just been nice to get away from it. And just I'm realizing I'm definitely ready to let go of the rain. Um, 
and really now exploring what my role would be in Flawless, whether it should be more guidance and advisory and somebody and the rest of the team and others will run it. Um, I'm definitely lost the energy for the day-to-day runaround for it. So I'm still exploring then what what do I want outside of Flawless? Because my who I am as a human being is now so integrated with the business. It's like, you are done flawless, flawless, you are done. Like, it just, there's no separation. So even when people say, how are you? Don't worry, flawless will be fine. Is not how are you as an individual, but like, how are you within the business of flawless? Right. So, and I've been so lost in that journey as well. It's like, I've lost what I want. Now it's like, it's time to say, okay, what do, I'm now in my mid forties. Is this what I want to do going forward? Or do I want a different role for myself, whether within Flawless or outside of Flawless? So I'm still exploring. I don't have the answer. And I was talking to my business coach and she said, process of elimination is one way of getting to it as well. So you can say, I know I don't want ABC mm-hmm. until you get to a point where you're like, this is, I know this is what I want. So for us right now, um, you know, re- it's almost like rebuilding Flawless. So the team I have, now they're like, you you know, they call me yo-yo. They're like, we're going to do, um, we're definitely going to start doing weddings. And I'm like, yeah, you know, go for it. We'll build the brand enough that, you know, it should be able to separate um, what we do for the corporate side versus the, and then they're like, we're all doing things so we can do more marketing and PR work. I'm like, yeah, you know, go for it. So I needed that for the company as well. Fresh perspectives, people with different energy to take it to a different level. Right. Like right now, um, we we want a contract for the prime minister's office and the team's like running around crazy and I'm going, great, you know, that's that's nice. And they're like all excited and I'm excited for them. You know, I'm not even, last year this time, I would have been like, change of flight, gotta go earlier, we got a huge contract, I have to go. But now I'm like, actually I go back, I have to be quarantined for 14 days. I'm like, you guys are on your own on this one. You know, and they're freaking out, but I'm like, you got this, like, you know, you have right. it. But it's, it's a, if, if you ever knew me, that's such a huge shift for me because I'm to be so neurotic about being there for every major event. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm on that journey of trying to figure out what's next. I wish you all the best as you, mm. you separate yourself from your brand. <laughs> you yeah. know? And um, yeah, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure. Lovely talking to you, Akiko. That was Yordan Telahun founder and CEO, Flawless Events. The opportunity of a lifetime should be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. The lesson here is that we don't need all our docs in a row to get going. By all means, start. However, to grow and scale, you will need strategy. And there are many resources out there like the Stanford Seed Program, so do check them out. We continue to celebrate audacious women like you, Aden, who show us what is possible when passion meets opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or others in the past, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.